Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibell. Literary Speaking is the author's guide to writing and publishing, sharing tips and tricks for aspiring authors. Crystal Lee's expert guests will bring you the latest information on how to write and publish your book into being. Are you ready to tell your story? Here's your host. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal Lee Quibble, and today my guest is Rachel Dewaskin. Rachel is the author of six novels, including Someday We Will Fly, Blind, and her newest, Banshee. Dewaskin's memoir, Foreign Babes in Beijing, about the years she spent in China as the unlikely star of a Chinese soap opera, has been published in six countries. It's currently in development at BBC America, where she's co-writing a TV series based on that book. She's also on the core fiction faculty and is an affiliated faculty member of Jewish Studies and East Asian Studies at the University of Chicago. Banshee is a juicy, dark, sexy read that I think everyone must get and be able to read at the beach in the shade with a cool drink. And you're definitely going to want a fan because it's hot, hot, hot. Enjoy the conversation today and welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Good. So how did you end up finding your agent when you first started writing? So I feel like my agent was a love match. I met her 15 years ago after I had written a series of articles and an editor had expressed interest in a book that I might be writing. This editor wrote me and said, are you writing a book? And I wasn't. But I said, of course I am, because we're all sort of writing a book, even when we're just (laughs) making essays about our lives. Um, And I met with a couple of agents. And the one I liked most was this young person named Jill Grenberg, who had her own tiny agency and who was just brilliant about books and the world and how I might shape a book out of the essays I was making. I wanted the book to be very um, kind of irreverent and it didn't follow a conventional memoir format. And Jill was just so brilliant about strategizing with me about how not just to sell it, but also to make it. That's really cool because I think, you know, that happens a fair bit when people have essays that go viral or they get a certain amount of attention and editors reach out. It was really smart to say, absolutely, I have a book. (laughs) I wanted wanted them to be a book, but I didn't really know how to organize them into something that was long form. Mm -hmm. And I think it's rare, but quite lucky to have an agent who can help with that part of the process. Um, I now teach classes at U Chicago on structure, not so much with memoir, but with fiction, because it's quite, it's a lot easier to write a brilliant beginning to something than it is to write the whole thing, as I think most writers know. And good agents can be really helpful because they've seen a lot of different shapes and sizes of books and different ways to be propulsive or to pace something or to make it meaningful. And Jill has always been that person for me, no matter what I'm writing. And so the two of you have worked to, how long did you work together with her to get the book ready and, and sort of get it out there? 
the first, your first one? Because that was nonfiction, Jill actually sold it with a proposal and three sample chapters, which ended up being really liberating for me because it meant that I could work very gradually on how to shape the book. I made the three chapters and I made a chapter breakdown of what I thought the book would end up looking like and wrote a proposal about how I thought the book might fit into the world in terms of other books that either resembled or suggested or honored or preceded it. And then I got to make the book slowly and where it diverged from the proposal it, it was fine. Norton, my publisher then was, was Norton for that book. And they were very hands off about what shape the book took as long as it was good. And the proposal, selling it with the proposal was really nice. I got an advance and I was able to live off that advance while I wrote the book. So it worked quite well, logistically speaking. And then how long did it take to put the proposal together? Not that long. I mean, this is many years ago, but I want to say it was, it was certainly under a year. It might have been three or four months to make the proposal. I already had quite a bit of the material, which I had shown Jill in order to get her interested and willing to sign on. Um, and we made the proposal together. We worked on it probably for three or four months and then we sold the book pretty quickly, maybe in a month, a month or two. I feel like the proposal, the books that are sold on proposal, they tend to sell a little more quickly, actually a lot more quickly than just, you know, cold querying kind of thing, cold pitching. Do you well, find I have that a theory different? about the difference between proposals and full length manuscripts. I think like <laughs> basically a proposal is like a secret admirer in the sense that like it's everybody, it could be anybody. So you feel like it's every, it's everyone. And then when you find out who it is, in other words, when it's actually the whole full book, it's just that one person kind of like <laughs> yeah, that person's good, but like it was better when it was just an idea in some way. I think like proposals are, they're a delicious genre because people can project their own dreams for the book onto them. Whereas when you have a full book, you need an editor who really gets and loves that whole entire book. Mm, That makes a Um, lot of sense. Yeah. And I think cold querying that to me, that's just a different stage entirely. Like if you're sending just an idea with, without material to support it, that's kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. I think that's a very difficult sell because then there's no real sense of, of what the project will look or feel like. And you've written both fiction and nonfiction. Did you find it to be more difficult to sell one genre versus the other? You know, it's funny. If you had asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said that I thought nonfiction was easier to sell, but I no longer think it cleaves neatly along genre lines. I've had a really easy time selling certain novels and a very painful and difficult time selling other novels. And it's not always obvious to me which, which it will be when I write a book. I can't really tell what, what drives interest in a particular project. So one of my novels I, I sold to an indie press uh, years ago, my first novel called repeat after me. And that book was considered bizarrely literary. Although to me, it, it was more commercial than a book I later sold called big girl small, which sold quickly and had many, many bids and lots of interest. And big girl small is about a teenage little person who gets involved in this horrible kind of miserable scandal in her performing arts high school. It seemed to me a very esoteric, angry, strange and literary book. Whereas repeat after me was a book about a Chinese dissident who marries his English as a second language teacher in New York city in, in uh, 1989. And that seemed to me very commercial, but wasn't. So I can't really, I, I can't really tell what, what makes a book, you know, buzz and what makes a book not buzz. Um, 
but it doesn't seem to me to be entirely about genre. That said, I do think it's easier to sell nonfiction if it's partial. I've only sold one partial novel, which was my book Blind. I wrote the first chapter and, and Penguin uh, Random House bought the book without my having written the rest of it. But that's an anomaly for me. Normally I have to write the whole book. And if, let me just say, if I were an editor, I would insist on having the whole book because getting the penultimate parts of a book, the part right before the ending, right, is really, is really very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you, I liked how, what you said about, you know, sometimes you want to have the full book because you want the editor to really love the full story as well. But there's also the, the edge where when you pitch just a couple of chapters, you have a bit of playroom to sort of develop and, and figure out, you know, what's, what's happening with the ending and how to pull it all together. Absolutely. And I mean, for a lot of people, there's really the press, the practical aspect which is that you sometimes you need money to have time to work on your book. And so in that sense, it's really nice for writers to be able to sell a book in advance of writing the whole thing, because the advance gives you an advance. It gives you money and time to, to make the book. Not everybody has the luxury of being able to write the whole book. Although many people who don't have the luxury still manage because writers are a gritty and practical group, as you know. Yes. <laughs> did you end up staying with the same publisher for all of your books or did you sort of pitch different ones when it came to different themes for fiction and nonfiction? I'm so monogamous about my agent that I'm scared even to talk to other agents at parties. I'm unbelievably loyal uh, to my agent and I, I will never change agents as long as I live. But I have changed publishers many times. And partly that's because my books are so different from each other that each book has has found an editor who's just perfect for that book. And the truth is, I mean, this sounds so cheerful and Pollyanna as to be disingenuous, but it's just true that I've loved all of my, all of my editors, you know, I worked with Courtney Hodel at FSG on that book, Big Girl Small about the little person. And she was brilliant. And the woman at the small press who did, um, repeat after me was really young and fierce. And she made that book younger and fiercer in ways I wanted it to be. And my editor at Norton, Elaine Mason was brilliant about China and politics. And she made my nonfiction account of the 1990s and being a soap opera star in Beijing oxygenated and smart. Um, and being with Penguin Random House this last uh, couple books has been just amazing. My editor, Regina Hayes, there is the most elegant thinker and writer. And she sends me editorial letters and I can work from them for months and months and months. They really, they light up pathways in, in the work that I'm not able to find without her guidance. And then my, mo my new book, which is coming out, I've done with Jennifer Baumgardner. And I don't know if you know her, but she is an absolute yes. feminist powerhouse and just one of the most delightful, intellectually curious and rigorous, engaged, ferocious people I've ever met. I have loved working with her and she's perfect for this book. So I feel really grateful that I've gotten to, to work with so many incredible women. And do you, do you tend to, when you're working on the book as a whole, do you, before you begin, do you sort of draft the character traits before writing or do the characters just sort of evolve as you write the story? 
I would say it's a little bit of both. I, I mainly feel inspired. I usually have a voice in mind for a character and I like to write sequences in that voice. I, I write a lot of interiority first and then I try to figure out the story, put the character in some difficult context. There's a book, um, a, a dramatic writer's companion book published by U Chicago Press, um, by William Don called The Dramatic Writer's Companion. And I love that book. And there's a, there's a section in it, which I often give my students a character builder and it's almost punitive. He, it's like, what what daily medication does your character take? What's the worst memory from primary school that your character has? How does she spend her weekend mornings between 7.15 and 7.18 a.m.? It's unbelievably specific, and there are a million questions. And, you know, normally those, those kinds of details don't fully make it into a manuscript. But if you know them, you can feel that there's landscape underneath the creation of your person. So sometimes when I feel like the writing is flimsy or the character is doing implausible or inconsistent things, I go back to William Dunn's character builder and I try to ask myself whether I've actually done my diligence and know the answers to those questions. And when the answer is no, I sit down and I think those things through. But I only do that kind of late if I think there are problems. When I'm writing and it's going well, I just make the people and I put them in difficult contexts and watch them speak to each other and make choices. I think I really liked that within, so your forthcoming novel, Banshee, is just this really cool story about this woman, Samantha, who discovers she has cancer and then her very, you know, safe, normal life. She begins to sort of, I don't know, deconstruct it in a way. Yeah, <laughs> she kind of, that's a good way to describe it, actually. Yeah. It's like she has this very constructed, she's a professor, you know, married. She has the house. She has everything that most people would dream of. But then it's like, I've played it safe and now I have cancer. And so she decides to behave the way that men normally do just to see what will happen. Right. So she, she, I just like, I loved the character development because each character had their own specific like traits and qualities. And you're kind of watching them in these very, very difficult conversations and situations. Right. Like right. she, you know, I hope I can reveal she has an affair in the beginning right, <laughs> with, right. with a student. Right. And then it's, it's kind of like, there's this in the beginning, it's like unspoken, like, something's up but they don't quite know what and and so i really liked how it how the story evolved with the characters and them each staying true to who they who they were but throughout it she's doing all these like things like getting in the sleeping bag and bouncing down the stairs and right. <laughs> you know just have fun just be like right. i love this when i was a kid let's see how this makes me feel so right. how, how did the whole idea for this story actually come into being? Like what inspired you to write it? Well, it's so funny. So I was teaching a class called Literary Empathy at U Chicago, but I kept saying to my students, and I, I think, I believe strongly that the best way to inhabit the life of a human being who is not you is by reading a novel and that the only more intense way to do it is, by, is to write a novel, which of course is significantly more frustrating and takes a lot longer. <laughs> but I use novels as a way to imagine my fears and imagine kind of sometimes worst case scenario catharsis style. I'm trying to like live out the things I don't actually want to live out in my, in my life. Um, but I kept saying to my students, like your characters don't have to be likable. And I really, I hate the word relatable. I'm so tired of that word. I don't know. I want the characters to be compelling. I want them to be fascinating yeah. and to do things that make me look and make me ask, why did she do that thing? Not, is that thing good or bad? Or would even would I do that thing? Which I think is a 
it, you know, it's, it's a temptation, but probably not the most literary way to read. Um, and so I tried to make a character who behaves hideously, like who does things I would never do and who has a worldview that I don't exactly share, kind of a more corrosive approach to, to teaching and to treating her students. And I wanted to imagine what it would be like if a woman who had been polite and pleasing her whole life decided never to be polite or pleasing again to please only herself. And the men in the book are actually really good guys. Like her husband is a decent yeah. good person. <laughs> and he's like, you know, a casualty of her terrible behavior. And yet I wanted the constraint of not having her apologize and not having her have her comeuppance. And in a way that's almost a structural it's like a structural difficulty because then what shape does the book take, right? If, if nothing happens as a result of her horrible behavior, then what have I asked or said and what kind of message have I conveyed? But the thing that interests me most about human beings and characters is the contradictions we inhabit and embody. So she's full of contradictions. And her daughter is, of course, the age, almost the age of the student she's having an affair with. And her okay. daughter's really smart and sharp. And she's going to come to understand what's going on in some way. And that's going to be the outcome, right? The outcome is that the things you do leave a record of having been done. And that record becomes who you were. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, so I was like, oh, yeah, because there's this part where she is in, I think it's when she's in the tub with the student and she has this moment of reflection and she's like, wow, no, no wonder men do this stuff. No wonder they cheat on their wife because it feels so good. And I thought it was right. so funny because for somebody like her, she's very, like her, her regular everyday life is really great. She has this really great life and she normally would never ever consider any of that. And, and just for her to say like, Oh, I get it now. This is why they're so bad because it feels so good to be bad. And yeah. I feel like she she's trying to reason with herself to not apologize for it. She's trying right. to really embody that like unapologetic. I'm going to do what I want and see how it feels for a change in my life. Because when you get news like that, whether it's terminal or not, it really sort of flips the idea of how precarious life is that we're here one day and gone the next. So it's like she's trying on this wild banshee lifestyle. That's, I think, what I love about it. <laughs> Thank you. I think she also, like, there's a way in which we all contain all the versions of ourselves. And I've been mm -hmm. thinking lately that sometimes getting older, I mean, obviously getting old is better than the alternative, right? Which is perishing young. But I think when we get older, we sometimes have a wistful feeling about our younger selves. I mean, I never wish that I was young again because I had a fabulous time in my youth and I don't want to give up the things I've built since like my babies, for example, or my beautiful <laughs> marriage or my, my career, which I love. I, I prefer to be a grown up, but sometimes I think there's a way in which we want to just dip back into the way it felt to be young. And I think in a beautiful sense, adults do this by reading books that are written for young people. Sometimes when I read with my teenage girls, and I'm reading YA or sometimes I, some, some of my books are YA. So when I'm in a conversation with teenagers, I'm reminded of the, the fresh newness of being young and what that felt like. 
And I think what Samantha Baxter is looking for is herself. And she's trying to find some version of herself, which is not the terrified middle-aged, potentially dying one she's contending with right now. And so she's looking at Leah, her student, as a kind of almost a mirror, which is itself very selfish. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also not totally, uh, it's not impossible to understand why somebody in a moment of gutting existential and primal fear would be motivated to behave that way. Well, and I think too, sometimes young adult uh, genre gets a bad rap sometimes. Like people think, oh, I'm too old to read that. But some of the best works I've read have been young adult and you learn so much from them. I feel that way too. And let me just say about the two books I've, I've marketed or written or packaged as young adult of my own work, that there's no distinction. Well, I mean, Banshee is a dirty book, so it's not appropriate for teenagers, <laughs> but especially my teenagers. I'm like, you can read this when I'm dead and not before that. <laughs> but like the, the YA books, I have never once had an editor at, at Penguin in my YA life tell me to take the teeth out of something. I've never had them ask me to change the syntax. And my YA books are written as if they're written for adults. Because when I was a teenager, I had a very sharp radar for pandering. And I didn't like being condescended to. And I read like a grown-up. And I just think a lot of really fine literature is happening in, in YA and it's happening for teenagers because teenagers are brilliant readers. They're intellectually curious. They're connecting dots. They're not dogmatic. Their brains aren't mummified in the tedious way that our adult brains are. And so people write books for them and because books change you when you're a teenager. And I think it's really meaningful and profound to write for young people and to be in a conversation with them about literature. And the syntax in my YA books is every bit as sophisticated and polished. And and I work as hard on them as I do on my adult books. And I don't make allowances for the fact that they're being read by younger people. What sort of books changed and shaped you as a teenager? Well, I'm embarrassed to say some of them. I mean, I must have read Gone with the Wind, which is so racist and embarrassing. I tried to read it with the girls. I could barely get through it. But I read Gone with the Wind over and over in the hopes that it would turn out some different way, ultimately. And then I read The Bluest Eye. Toni Morrison, that book completely mm-hmm. formatted my imagination when I was a kid. And, you know, my parents are intellectuals and they were not uh, policing the bookshelf. I read Lolito when I was 11. Oh, wow. You know, paying attention <laughs> in my house, you know, and yeah. in a way I think, wow, that was edgy. And then I also think it's actually not a bad way to exercise your brain, to read things that are past your pay grade or above your, your level or your capacity. It's like stretching or something you have to. And, and it's also, again, it's like the thing I was talking about earlier about experiencing things and fears and, and, and terrors and contexts in your mind or in a book that you don't then have to experience in your life kind of gives kids a way to sort things out. I mean, I read Baldwin when I was really young. I read all my parents' books. Um, and then I read Judy Bloom over and over and over. I read oh, those yeah. books until I had them memorized. Yeah. I loved Judy Bloom. <laughs> she comes um, up. I've read them all to my girls and those are really finely rendered unpatronizing books. A lot of them. Yeah. She really understands young people. Well, and I think that's key to knowing your audience in a way that, you know, you want to be on level playing ground, because I feel like a lot of times people want to put teenagers in this sort of box. And I'm like, they pick some of the best literature out there. And they're the biggest promoters of it. When they love a book, it catches on like wildfire, you know, even 
with my own daughter, who's also a teenager, and she'll get a book. And then all of a sudden, the whole class is reading it because they're all talking about what's happening and, and that kind of thing. So I love that aspect of it. And I feel I'm so embarrassed to admit, but Catcher in the Rye, I read in grade eight. And I remember my English teacher said to me, she's like, I want you to read this again in five years and let me know what you think. You'll probably understand it a lot better. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was so insulted. I was right. so insulted because I was like, no, this, like, I get this character. I get this book. And, and despite everything that's come out about JD Salinger since that book was really a turning point for me, I felt because I was like, if he can write that, I can totally write a book. Cause it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like it was some sort of, you know, I don't know. I think just because it was so regular, it was like this regular kid going about his life. And, and so there was a deeper meaning to it, but it also, it just had this way of inspiring me to think like, it's possible I can write a book like this. And I think that's what it does for young people too. I think so too. And that's a good example. I mean, I kind of feel like Catcher in the Rye and maybe even To Kill a Mockingbird would be considered YA now. Mm-hmm. If we had had those distinctions then, we might have put them on the YA shelf and yet every adult should read them. I also really think it's important for, for adults to read with teenagers. Mm-hmm. I love being in conversation with my kids about books and with their friends. And my daughter and I have been in a, a book group since she was seven, since second grade. She's 14. So Aww. seven years of reading books with a group of girls and their moms. And it's oh, that's just cool. such a good way into so many conversations we may otherwise not have. And she and I are now reading uh, to A Tree Grows in Brooklyn to, to my 11-year-old. I read it to, to my 14-year-old when she was, I think, 10. And now we're reading it together with her little sister. And it's just so fun. And it's fun to reread those books. And teenagers also reread in a way that adults don't, partly because we have yes. no time. Um, yeah. and that's also a, a very meaningful way to become a, a bigger and more empathetic person with a better brain and a better perspective on the world and yourself and your place in it, I think. Well, and I, I love the discussion that happens around books too, especially with all different age groups, just to see what people pick out from it, that they get from it and, and their opinions and views. It's always so interesting, but I love that mother daughter book club. I think that's a fantastic idea. It's really lovely. It's been a lovely experience. In terms of characters, do you have a favorite character that you wrote in Banshee? I mean, in a way, my favorite character is Alexi, the daughter. Oh, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite scene in the whole book is is when Samantha, the professor, the mom, the the, the Banshee, takes Alexi to get a manicure and a pedicure, and yes. they have this conversation about intersectional feminism. And Samantha just realizes that she's so out of her depth, and mm-hmm. her love for Alexi is so just totalizing. She just loves her kid. And yet she's like doing this thing that's probably going to have a horrible impact on her kid's life. And I love the way her kid thinks about the world and, and schools her mom, but is also kind enough to come home in the middle of her semester because she realizes her mom is sick and struggling. And I find their relationship. I love to write about moms and their daughters. And mm-hmm. often the daughters in my books are, are my favorite characters because they're, I don't know. There are like my ways of imagining my own girls moving forward. And they're also ways of remembering who I once was when I was much younger and much more kind of much more unapologetic, frankly. Yeah. Much less pleasing. Do you find after you've written, because that book was so, it's such a great 
I feel like a great feminist read. It's sexy. It's juicy. It's dark. Do you, do you mourn the characters when you finish writing? Like you, you. Have- First of all, thank you for saying that. Um, no, I actually, this is a funny thing. I, I don't read my books once they come out because I feel they don't belong to me anymore. Exactly. They belong to the conversation. I love having conversations with people about my books and their books and all books, but I, I feel like my characters come to life when the books come out, they become real people. I mean, I know that's such a weird thing to say, and maybe it's pretentious, but it's almost like they're, you know, the Chinese folktale, the, the idea that when you put the eyes on the dragon and the scroll, the dragon comes to life. There's something about having the book in the world that makes the characters immortal for me in a way that they're not when they're in my mind or, or in my file, in the word document or even in the manuscript. Um, and so in a sense, it's kind of, um, it's kind of double edged and full of contradiction for me. The idea that they're alive once they're in the world, but they also no longer belong to me. So I don't exactly mourn them. I feel grateful that they live. And like, here's another funny thing about young people reading. I get letters from, from teenagers asking me, how is, how is Emma Sasha Silver doing? She's the girl at the center of my book, Blind, which is about this girl who loses her eyesight. Or I get letters asking me how Judy Loden is. And she's the protagonist uh-huh. of Big Girl Small. And I think for kids, the characters are real people. And yes. I write back and I'm like, she's doing great. Oh, I love that. That's so sweet. Like, actually, that was just something I made up and then I closed the covers on it. Like, I think that the people who read your books kind of breathe life into the characters. I love that because I remember reading Go Ask Alice and just being so haunted for like even sometimes just rarely I'll be like I wonder whatever happened with all that. And I I think I've Wikipedia it and like checked it out a few times, but it's, it's funny how those characters stay with us. And some of the books that I read that were just, you know, like regular fiction tales, when I, you think about those characters and what would they be doing now and what happens when the story ends and the book closes. So I love that you write them back and tell them they're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> I just reread Go Ask Alice too, uh, with my 14 year old last summer. And it was so prescient and kind of, forward thinking. I mean, it's shocking that she wrote that book when she did, you know, it's Mm -hmm. fiction, right? That's not, it's not a memoir. Right. I think it was marketed as memoir misunderstood to be memoir or something. Yeah. I think a lot of people, cause I know when I read it, when I was a kid, I was like, Oh my gosh, this really happened. And (laughs) and I was always like researching. (laughs) And so I was just like diving into Wikipedia and like, what happened with this character? Like, I just felt like it was so, uh, because it leaves very unfinished in a way. And you're just left like, Oh, come on. Something. Is there a sequel? Is there something out there? But but yeah, I felt like that was a really powerful, a powerful read at that age too. Amazing read. Absolutely amazing read. And also really decent parents in that book. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that's probably not the first thing that everybody in the world notices about that book, but I always write books in which girls are kind to each other. Yes. Um, because first of all, it's a feminist imperative. Second of all, it's my lived experience that women are really kind to each other and supportive and keep, keep each other afloat. I've never seen the, the Hollywood backlash kind of B movie 
reality, the idea that girls are in some kind of competition with each other. And for what? For romantic interests or positions of glory? I think it's not a zero-sum game. So I try to tell stories of girls who, when they betray each other, do it because their objectives cross, not because one girl is a mean girl. I don't believe in mean girls. I hate that trope. And I also try to write parents who are doing the best they can. Because I think a lot of times when we fail each other, it's not because we're terrible people. It's just because we're ill-equipped to communicate, to communicate successfully or save each other across the kind of chasms that threaten to divide us. And I appreciated it and go ask Alice that the parents were really actually trying very hard to save their kid. Yeah, because I think sometimes it's almost like in some books, they're like villainizing the parents to try to, I feel like some of them have tried to do that in the past. Like when I was younger, a lot of the young books were like the parents were the bad guys and the kids were just trying to live their life. And and it's really not so much like that, especially after we become parents and realize (laughs) how difficult it is. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. When it, when it came to promoting each book, what did you sort of find that was the most effective in getting the work out there and getting people to read it and review it? You know, I've done all the things. I do lots of book events. For the young people books, I go to schools and I meet tons and tons of kids and they're so literary and serious and they want to be writers and they have read the book in some cases more carefully than I have. <laughs> um and I've written op-ed pieces about issues that, that connect to the material in the books, mainly because I'm interested in that material or I wouldn't be writing the books. Like I just had a book come out in January called Someday We Will Fly, which is about uh, a group of Jewish refugees who survived World War II in Japanese-occupied Shanghai. It's an unbelievable historical story about these resilient refugees who landed in this unbelievably unfamiliar place and managed to build schools and communities and musical groups. And they had a lively cultural life, even though they were impoverished and and had just fled Nazi-occupied Europe. It's an amazing history. And I wrote it about a young person um, because I was interested in the question of how how parents create normalcy for children in contexts that are guaranteeing the the force of dread, like occupied cities. I mean, Shanghai was at war then too. And I've been promoting that book in so many different ways. You know, I've written op-eds about, about refugees and migration, and I'm teaching a class at UChicago. I mean, I don't know if this is really promoting it, but it's kind of all in the in the interest of thinking deeply about something or being in the conversation about it. I'm teaching a class on migration and historical fiction. Um, I'm going to Beijing and Shanghai to lead a historical walk through the streets of Shanghai where the Jews were ghettoized in 1943. And I'm doing, you know, bookstore readings and traveling. And for Banshee, I'm doing tons and tons of conversations with feminist writers. I love that. I'm doing an event with Carol Strait in Portland. I'm doing an event with my my friend and co-writer Gina Frangello, the the author of A Life in Men in Chicago. Um, and I'm I'm traveling the world and and talking about about this book and and women's perspectives and our rage, you know. Uh, so I I try to do all the things, and honestly, I don't know which ones work best. I don't know kind of what's doing the most. Of course, I love librarians, and I'm always so glad and grateful when I get to meet with librarians or do programs at libraries. I feel like those really matter because librarians connect people to the books that will make a difference for them. Yeah, definitely, because they really influence. I know when I was younger too, the librarian influenced what I read. They'd say, you know, I really think you would like this. It's like they get to know everybody that comes to the library and people that frequent it 
they give recommendations and they really put the work out there and they just really love literature. Exactly. Exactly. Now, did you hire a publicist for any of your work or did you do your own publicity? No, I hired, I, so I've had very good in-house publicists a lot of the time. And then for someday we will fly. I, for the first time I did hire a publicist. Um, and, and they've been reaching out to specialized media, you know, Jewish media and, and East Asian studies media. And they've set up a bunch of events and they did this very fun blog tour, which I loved. I wrote a bunch of content and it was like, you know, things about my bookshelf and things about my research and two truths and a lie and, you know, things about my, my, the interior of my mind. It was all very fun for me. Um, and they gave away some books and they've given away some kind of swag and that's been really fun. So the social media aspect I've, um, outsourced this time because I, I'm, I'm so busy. I have this new book coming out and I actually have a poetry book coming out next year, um, which I've been revising. Um, and I teach full time at U Chicago. So, uh, my time for doing the kind of the, the, the strategic work of publicity is slightly limited. And I like to have young experts on board helping me with that. It's been a really good experience working with media masters who are the publicist I hired to help me work on, uh, someday we will fly. They've been great. Very thoughtful. That's good to know because I think a lot of people struggle with whether to hire outside publicist or just go with the publishing house. And then it does come down to with the publishers. It just depends on where they're going to put their dollars for promoting in books. So a lot of times I've talked to authors that said, like, I didn't realize that I would need to hire somebody for a specific, you know, genre or something just to give it that extra little push. Exactly. It's always always nice to hear a review of somebody that's doing a really great job in publicity too. Yeah, they're doing a good job. And, you know, Jill, again, this is the kind of thing that, that my agent and I discuss endlessly and we try to figure out the ins and outs and we try to figure out sort of how much we want to ask somebody to do and whether it's appropriate to ask an in-house publicist if you have tons of extra ideas and thoughts and legwork you want done. Um, So partly it was a long strategy session with Jill And did you feel like, was there any particular advice you were given that you received about writing that you found really, really helpful in writing BMG and your other works? So when I was, oh my God, was I 28? When I was 28, I called my professor, Robert Pinsky, who was poet laureate then. I was in poetry school and it was right around the time, this is a perfect bookend because it was right around the time when I had this editor call me and say, are you writing a book? And I called Robert because I wanted to know if I wrote a memoir and if I spent the years I knew it would take putting the book together and making it beautiful and trying to make it mean something and ask something and move in some profound way, did that make me not a poet? If I if I spent my time writing a nonfiction book, was I in some way selling out my poetry career or doing work that, that was at the expense of something else I should be doing instead. I I guess I needed permission in some way to write that book. And he said kindly and generously, you have a very interesting mind, write a book that interests you and other people will find it interesting. 
And that shouldn't necessarily have been a huge revelation. And he was just a very generous professor being kind to one of his young students. But I have come back to that over and over. And I have come back to it when it's been difficult to sell a novel I wrote. And I've thought I wanted to write this book because it, it was interesting to me because I was following my wonder, as I like to call it with my students. I think that you write kind of not so much what you know, as the cliche goes, but more what you wonder, what you need to find out or figure out. And in that sense, you have to be true to yourself and you have to work on projects that drive your imagination because you spend years in the bat cave <laughs> thinking about them and wondering about them and making them shapely and, and beautiful and meaningful. And so I found that so liberating. Write a book that interests you and other people will find it interesting. I really think that's a very deep way to think of it. So I appreciate, I appreciated Robert Pinsky in that moment. And in every year since I've thought about that. I absolutely agree. I think it's, it's a great way to think about it rather than what's hot right now. I'll write about what's hot. Cause I see people asking on Twitter a lot, you know, what's trending right now in publishing. And it's like everything. Oh everything. But it takes you know, so many years to write a book. If you write what's trending now, your book's <laughs> going to come out six years from now. Well, I exactly. Mean, there's no way to do it like that. I wouldn't know how to do that either. I don't think that you can, the, the ideas for your book have to originate from something inside of you. They, they're not externally, they, they, they're not externally derived. I don't think. Well, and I don't know if you find this too, but I, I was driving to an appointment last week and right just out of the blue, I got this idea for a fiction book. And I was like, oh my God, I have to pull over and write this down so I don't forget yes. it. <laughs> that is the path. Did you write it down? Yeah, I did. And then yes. when I got to my appointment, my friend was there and I'm like, okay, I have to tell you this and see what you think. And and she was like, oh, I got goosebumps. I'm like, okay, I'm on the right track then. Because it, it gave me that feeling. And I've had ideas before, but some of them are fleeting and I'm like, eh, I don't know. But it really speaks to that, write what you're passionate about, because then it becomes easier to write it in, in that sense. And then also in promoting, like who wants to promote a textbook they wrote on math if they don't care about math? <laughs> right. No, it's very difficult to do that. And I often think like, if you want to, if you want to sell things, that's fine. That's fine. And there are many ways to sell things, but probably they shouldn't be books. <laughs> I guess. I don't think like, <laughs> I don't think writers are necessarily the best at selling things or that like books are, I don't really think of books as products exactly. I mean, I'm very grateful that there are those people who do think of them that way and who do a great job figuring out how to make them beautiful and magical and s distribute them and get people interested in them. But I think as a writer, the job is really to kind of make the most beautiful thing you can make and make sure that the meaning of it is what you intended. Or if it surprises you that you're kind of aware by the time it comes comes out of what questions you've asked with it. Um, and that those are the questions you meant to ask in some way. I don't really think that you can guess what people will want to read other than, you know, yourself as a reader. I mean, I love your story about having an idea and pulling over to the side of the road. I think like the best days at the desk are the days when you're both the reader and the writer, right? Mm -hmm. When you're writing something and you can't wait to find out what happens next. It's like reading and writing at the same time. You're, you cleave into two versions of yourself and you get the goosebumps or you get the, the feeling like, Oh my God, this story is really good. And you're the one making it. That's so delightful. I mean, of course there are years when that doesn't happen, but when it does, <laughs> it feel worth it. You know, it's like a drug. 
Well, exactly. And I, I think too, I don't know if you're like this, but if you're working on something, do you immerse yourself fully in it and just sort of put up like, I don't know, some sort of ethereal sign to the muse or whomever is out there bringing these ideas into us? Like, not right now, because I have to finish this. Or do you just accept the ideas as they come whenever they come? I accept, I will always accept the ideas whenever they come cash on delivery. I'm like, if I have a good idea, I write it down immediately, even if it's unrelated to the project I'm working on. And you know, often, often the best ideas for new projects come to me when I'm torturously shackled to some project that I have to turn in. And, and this is related to our earlier conversation because I wrote Banshee cheating on someday we will fly. <laughs> like I was writing, you know, Someday We Will Fly was a really, really difficult book for me to write. It took me eight years. It's a Holocaust novel. It, it took years of research. I lived in Shanghai for seven summers working on it and I loved it, but I also was, I was tormented by it many, many times for many different reasons. The structure was very difficult. I wanted it to be light on its feet, but also very clear about the era and the history and what was happening. And it was just a really difficult book. And whenever my editor had it on her desk, I was furiously writing Banshee late at night. I love that. I think that's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it gives you an escape. It's like a little pod that you, if something is going badly or if you need a couple of days away from something, or if you need to come back to your own project as a different reader, I need something else to work on in the meantime. I don't like to go days and days without working on anything. Then I feel, I feel restless and and unhappy. So I'm always working on multiple things basically. And that way, any new ideas, I can kind of, I can kind of shunt them in one direction or another. It's, it's interesting because Banshee also starts with such, I don't know how to say it. You're kind of in the middle of the action already. Like there's mm. not, you know how sometimes you pick up a book and it takes a bit. People will say like, right. oh, it took about 50 pages to get started. I'm like, no, I need something when I pick it up. It immediately begins. Right. And I'm like, what is going on? What's happening? Why is she doing this? Right. <laughs> so I right. liked that. It felt like Thank the you. urgency of one of those ideas coming in going, I have to get this down on paper before I forget, you know, and it just, it is really gripping read. And it's also super, super sexy, which I loved because, um, when I went to AWP, there was a big conversation between Lydia Yuknovich and Alexander Chi and Garth Greenwell and, uh, Carmen Mikado. And it was all about writing about sex and how a lot of people kind of gloss over it because they're uncomfortable writing about the body and writing about sex and all the things that, that go into that and the descript, the descriptive nature of it. So I, I really appreciated that it wasn't sort of held back in the book and it was, it's so funny. So I was at that panel and I have to say, Garth Greenwell had such a, he had such an impact on this book. I, he came to you Chicago and Ah. he gave a reading and I was not familiar with his work before he came. I mean, I read it in advance of his reading. So it was my first introduction to him. And then he gave this reading and he read such incredible descriptions of sex. And I remember yes. sitting in the audience like, oh my God, this is so radical. Like I thought it was politically radical the way he had written sex. And of course he was a poet originally, right? So the mm-hmm. writing was so full of l- lyrical brilliance and and restraint and control, even though the sex was completely unrestrained and out of control. And something about that combination, I literally went home and, and rewrote the sex scenes in Banshee. 
because I was like, it's dishonest for me to avert my eyes from these sex scenes. And I'm actually a little bit squeamish about sex. This book is a departure in that respect for me. I mean, I wrote sex in Big Girl Small that's like teenage sex full of awkwardness and, and suffering and various sorrows. Um, and there's like hints of sex in Repeat After Me. But I shied away from sex, certainly from graphic sex in my memoir. I'm not, I'm not of the brave elk that way. And so actually writing these sex scenes was a very difficult craft endeavor for me. And I feel like I owe a lot of the courage that was required, uh, to Garth Greenwell. And to Lydia. I mean, her books are, are just wild that way, you know? Yeah. And I think it, it opened it up for other people as well. Like I went to, um, his reading that they had offsite after, um, during AWP actually. And he read this sex scene and people, (laughs) everybody there was like, Holy shit. (laughs) When he was finished, we were all like, we need a cigarette and a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally. I mean, if you can give somebody that experience, there's something very giddy and exhilarating about that. On the other hand, like, you know, I think some people find that sort of thing really offensive. This is, there's one way in which like, this is again about the, about thinking about your audience or whatever. Like I just tried to think about those characters. I tried to write, those scenes in service to the characters in them, which I guess slightly contradicts my earlier idea that my characters aren't fully alive until they're out in the world. They're alive enough for me that I was thinking what, I mean, this is, again, this is makes me seem like I have many multiple personalities, which in a way I guess I do as a novelist. I was thinking like, what would Sam, how would Sam Baxter write these scenes? Like oh. I'm not Sam Baxter and I, I'm, I'm actually quite reserved in my, certainly in my professional life and, and, and have a, have a lovely setup and I'm not about to torch my own life to the ground. But I was thinking she's also a writer, right? She's a poet. And how would she want these scenes described? And I think she would not avert her eyes. And I think Leah, for all the suffering she will ultimately endure in their affair, because the power dynamic is so unfair. She, Leah's kind of a badass too. Mm -hmm. And when I thought about the two of them, I felt like neither of those two characters would want me to be like lowering the lights, you know? Well, in the way that Samantha watches her in the book, there's a way that she observes Leah and just how Leah like drops the towel and and walks, you know, confidently to go make her cheese sandwich. Like, (laughs) you know, it's not something a lot of people have the confidence to do. It's like, oh my God, pull up the sheets and turn the light off. Right. You know, like cover up right away. We right. sinned. <laughs> exactly. Do you remember that Seinfeld episode about good naked and bad naked people like yes. walking around bad naked? I was thinking about that when I was writing that. I was like, I never do that kind of thing. I mean, I don't, when I was in labor, I like had a, a bathroom. You know, I'm not, I'm not like, a hanging out naked person. So I'm always kind of, imp- and I'm impressed by girls who are just like, I'm not going to, again, that's like a way to be unapologetic. I was trying so hard in this book to let Samantha Baxter be unapologetic and to be unapologetic myself. And Leah in that scene where she walks naked through the apartment and makes a cheese sandwich naked. <laughs> it's just the most unapologetic thing. She's like, I, I don't care. Yeah. I, I, I don't care what I look like. Or I feel good enough about the way I look to be like, I'm going to make this cheese sandwich naked. You're welcome. <laughs> you should buy her too. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Yeah, you should be so lucky as to have me making this exactly. sandwich, right? It's like your naked sandwich, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, 
I really loved the story. I thought it was so gripping and compelling. And I think it's just, it's just such a great read. And I think it's perfect for summertime too. So it's the perfect Thank time you. for it to come out because it comes out June 4th, correct? Exactly. And they made a little pink, shiny, beautiful book. I mean, the book is so, I just got my copy last night, my first oh. copy. I just saw it and I'm thrilled. I think it looks amazing. I can't wait to get it in my hands because I had the advanced, you know, digital copy. But it, even oh, then, right. it was, I could see the cover that they've designed and it is beautiful. I love it because it's so it's in a, your face. It really sexy. It's like a sexy little shiny, small, yep. kind of perfect. It's a beautiful product, even though I said earlier, <laughs> the product part is not my job, so I can't take credit for it, but I feel like they made it something that's kind of delicious to hold it in your hands. I mean, that's true of so many books I love, and I'm really glad that they did a beautiful and thoughtful job with this one. Yeah. This was actually the first conversation I've had about Banshee. I feel oh, very giddy. So I don't exactly know how to talk about this book yet. So this was great for me. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Well, you're welcome to come back anytime and talk about books and feminism. And I just really, really Thank enjoyed you. that conversation. So did I. It's so fun to meet you. And I want to come back. Maybe I'll come back uh, six months from now and tell you how the conversation about sex and Banshee went on the road on my tour. Exactly. <laughs> I would love to know. I would love to know. <laughs> if I can be unapologetic in person about the book, I'm not so sure. I'm going to try. <laughs> I have a so, rule in my classes, which is that girls are not allowed to apologize unless they've hurt somebody's feelings. Because I do find that that women apologize all the time for breathing, for reading our work, for having a thought, for living, for eating food, for all the things that human beings have to do to be alive. So I'm trying to stop apologizing myself. I'm trying to set a good example for, for my girls. That's a really great advice because I know being Canadian, we con we do really apologize a lot. We're very, <laughs> we're passive aggressive apologizers. Like, oh, no worries, no problem. And then like off to the side, like you friggin' asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so it's better just to say how you feel and just kind of be, you know, in the moment and not feel I like you know, moment for that. Yeah. I feel like a lot of, I remember being as a teen, just feeling sorry for my own existence sometimes because I felt like a burden to my parents. I was this wild, crazy teenager doing all this stuff. And they're like, we're too tired for this. And I'm like, well, you should have thought of that before you had sex. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just one of those really snot baggy teenage things to say. Right. Right. So for our last question, I always like to ask if you could go back in time to before you had published anything, what advice would you give that writer? Chill out. Like at every moment of my life, I'm like, I I wish, and now I know this and I'm better about it, but I wish that I had just like absorbed and enjoyed and kind of looked at the ride a little bit more rather than constantly darting toward the destination. I was a very, very restless and frenetic person in my twenties in my youth. Um, and I wish that I had, had uh, like been a little bit kinder to myself, a little gentler about kind of where I was headed and, and how fast I had to get there. And that's not just true in terms of writing, but it's certainly true in terms of the writing as well. That's great. I really, yeah. I feel that's so true because we're always rushing for the finish line instead of just yeah. 
enjoy the moment that you're in because it's really delicious when you get to sit down at the desk and you're inspired and you're writing that first draft and you just feel like you can do anything at that moment. Totally. Yeah. And like, again, this is, is, it's in the context of the not apologizing propaganda, but not, not holding against myself every small failure or every line that didn't come out perfect or every line of prose that I later decided should have been a poem. Like to be a little bit less relentless on myself, a little more forgiving. Excellent advice. Would have been good. Yeah. (laughs) I approve this message. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I had a great time talking to you. Thank you for being my first live Banshee conversation. Absolutely. Rachel Dewaskin can be found online at www.racheldewaskin.com. Her book, Banshee, is available for pre-order now and comes out June 4th. Be sure to purchase, read, and review our guest books on Amazon, IndieBound, and Goodreads. Until next time, hand to heart, pen to paper, write on. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.